Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. It would be great if we could get an ostrich sponsor. Promo code WEEDS, you get free shipping. Unlike Paul Manafort. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Dara Lind, and joining us today, we have Andrew Prokop, our uh, chief mullerologist at the Vox.com team, because uh, we wanted to talk about Paul Manafort, about his ostrich jacket, his ostrich vest, his weird uh, snakeskin jacket, all kinds of things, but also like... Like, Why what is happening care? here? This is a classic sort of news event where it's been bubbling along kind of on the back burner for months now. Suddenly it's on the front burner. The weird clothes is hilarious. But, like, who who is Paul Manafort? Okay. I mean, the short version of why we care is that he's Trump's former campaign chair who Robert Mueller is prosecuting as part of his larger investigation. But, you know, the longer saga of Paul Manafort, he is something of – a legendary figure in Republican consulting and and lobbying circles. His career goes back to the 70s. He worked at Republican presidential conventions, presidential campaigns, all sorts of political campaigns. He had an important role on Reagan's 1980 campaign. And then after Reagan won, Manafort and uh, his friend at the time, Roger Stone, another big figure in these investigations, uh, they set up a lobbying firm, which became also a legendary lobbying firm. They had all sorts of foreign clients from shady regimes and were raking in tons of bucks. And he basically set his sights on getting very rich. And he was willing to represent uh, the more, shall we say, controversial governments, opposition movements, or... um, businesses, others elsewhere in the world. And this this is just like, you know, to be clear, there are definitely, you know, we've seen people who are good at campaigns and who have won some campaigns in the U.S., like farming their skills abroad and like working on campaigns in Mexico or in the U.K. or that kind of thing. Like that's not what we're talking about here with Manafort. We're talking about like representing foreign government's interests in like lobbying in the U.S., right? Yeah, yeah. There's a really good profile of Manafort by Franklin Four at The Atlantic, and it puts his history here in the appropriate historical context, which is like 
he was doing something that was sort of new at the time. Like lobbying was becoming bigger and he created a sort of one-stop shop for, you know, his his business would do political campaigns. It would do lobbying for clients or um, and foreign governments also. So he sort of did everything and, and mixed – you know, his various activities in a way that wasn't so common before, but turned out to be extremely profitable and lucrative. And I think it's it's worth understanding the shifting political context of the time, right? So in the 80s, Ronald Reagan is president. He has taken over with a sort of, in theory, like different foreign policy concept than the Nixon Ford or Eisenhower one or the Democrats one, right? That we're going to like take it to the communists in like a new, more robust way that has been drawn out of the pages of National Review magazine and, and stuff like that in a sort of unclear way. And then the question always arises like how do you operationalize like a new idea out of the out of the hot takes world? And And one thing that happened was like a lot of U.S. money going to various groups around the world, armed insurgencies, in particular in in Africa, who would like say they were like fighting for freedom and capitalism. And Manafort did a fair amount of the work to sort of make that happen in Angola and, and other places like that to like brand various people with money to spend as – heroic resistance figures who the American government should go be backing. By the time we get closer to the present day, where Manafort is on his foreign lobbying and its alignment with where the conservative movement is, is is quite a bit different. Yes, uh, this, this is 80s, 90s Manafort. And and he's doing PR. He's uh, for these regimes. I, I think um, the opposition movement by Jonas Savimbi of Angola is the main example at the time, but also for incumbent regimes like uh, the Marcos regime in the Philippines, uh, who were accused of human rights abuses, authoritarianism. His his consulting firm with Roger Stone was was called the Torturers Lobby at some point in a report by a do-gooder group, like just that they would lobby for all sorts of torturers around the world. And, uh, you know, so Manafort made a lot of money doing this. And he would essentially dabble back in American politics too. Like he came back in and ran Bob Dole's 1996 Republican presidential convention when he was the Republican nominee. But then around the mid-2000s, his career took a bit of a turn. He gradually started dropping his U.S. clients and even his various other foreign clients to focus entirely on the former Soviet Union and specifically eventually Ukraine. Like he first got this business around 2004 and it was a Ukrainian oligarch at the time and also a Russian oligarch were both paying him to sort of navigate the region's new democratic politics. And, you know, they were extremely wealthy figures who had gotten rich in large part by – gaining control over state resources in the privatization period. And now they were looking for someone who could help their preferred candidates win elections or um, do PR for their businesses or, or what have you. So Manafort, he got a contract 
to do political consulting work for the party of regions in Ukraine. And this is the pro-Russian party that is there or, you know, advocating for closer ties to Russia as compared to the more Western-oriented other party. And the party of regions was in the opposition when Manafort got this job. So he essentially laid out a plan for them to win back power in the elections. And over the next decade, he successfully powered him to victory in the presidential campaign. And then he served as president for four years. And he made a whole lot of money during this time. Uh, Mueller has estimated $60 million from the Ukrainian business Manafort made. And it makes sense. It's like, This is a region where vast new fortunes had just been made, where his particular skills in um, winning elections or or doing PR had been developed in the U.S. but were less common over there. So he pitched himself as the guru who could help the oligarchs essentially manipulate the region's politics as they wish. But it's noteworthy that this is a repositioning of Manafort vis-a-vis American politics, right? That like the Bush administration was very enthusiastic about the Orange Revolution, which had cast the party that became the party of regions out of power. Like American foreign policy was meant to be on the other side of this divide and specifically like conservative American foreign policy, right? Whereas like old Manafort foreign work had been sort of beating back human rights types and do-gooders on behalf of, like, a Cold War alliance system. Like, new Manafort was getting a ton of money to work for a narrow group of clients who were opposed to the, like, main U.S. foreign policy objectives, which, you know, is not illegal, um, but it's a that's a different kind of thing to do, right? Like, lots of political consultants do foreign work, right? But typically, it'll be sort of, like, broadly aligned. And it's always noteworthy when, like, an Obama guy went and worked for David Cameron, right. you know, in the UK. It's not like a huge, like, gaping void of values. But, like, even so, to switch from the center left to the center right is, like, a big thing. And to switch from, like working for pro-American foreign policy forces to working for anti-American foreign policy forces. It's like, that's a pretty big, you know, people will do a lot for $60 million, um, but people in politics tend to take their ideological commitments at least like somewhat seriously. And it, it seems striking to me that Manafort really sort of went out to sea there. I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's more of a continuity there than you're saying, because The rise of Manafort is probably one of the things that moves us out of the Cold War, like the enemy of my enemy is my friend mindset, to the mindset that we're currently in now that like defines U.S.-Saudi relations, for example, where it's not so much that a regime that maybe isn't great on democracy or human rights is being actively defended as being great on democracy or human rights. It's more that it's just not as salient for American political actors to like talk about human rights abuses in countries where there are closer network ties between the people they interact with and the ruling regime. So like to kind of say, well, yeah, the Orange Revolution was something that the Bush administration, you know, was speaking out about because A, it was a very ideological neoconservative administration, but also because that was not a region where there were like particular U.S. interests or 
strong ties at stake where like that seemed like, you know, an easier pro-democracy card to play in the same way that like the revolution in Libya in 2011 was an easy revolution for the U.S. to back because they already didn't like Gaddafi. Like the fact that Manafort looks at that and goes, well, really, it's just that there aren't strong enough ties there. there there's an arbitrage opportunity here it makes a certain amount of sense. I, I, yes. But I mean, I think it's important to understanding like Trump, the Russia story, the Mueller investigation, et cetera, that like there is a uh, man bites dog quality to a Republican political consultant having been working for the pro-Russian political parties in Ukraine, even if there was no – nothing illegal about it. Right. Whereas like if you'd heard like, okay, uh, Donald Trump has just hired this new guy. He's been out of U.S. politics for a while, but he's been working for Bibi Netanyahu. Right. Some people would criticize that. Right. But it would be banal. Right. For like conservative Republicans to have ties to a conservative Israeli regime. It's not banal for a Republican candidate to have like close ties to the Russian regime. I mean, it's now becoming banal because we've gone through it for a while. But like at the time, that like like this was new. It was unusual, and Manafort was also he had uh, the Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska as one of his clients too at the time, and uh, this became a problem in 2008 when uh, Manafort's business partner back then, Rick Davis, actually ran John McCain's presidential campaign for a while. And uh, there was controversy around essentially Davis and Manafort's business with Deripaska, like how could a Republican presidential candidate hire these consultants who are doing work aligned with Putin's interests, it seems. So, but, you know, Manafort, was just chasing the money, it seems like. It, it was a really good business opportunity and uh, his his bet totally paid off. He became the leading outside political advisor to Viktor Yanukovych when he was president. He essentially started running a lot of lobbying business for the Ukrainian government uh, in those years when he was president. And as we're seeing at this trial right now, uh, he he got a lot of cash pouring in at the time and could afford an extremely uh, expensive and luxurious lifestyle. Okay, so it's not illegal right. to do PR for a foreign government. It's not illegal to um, even do PR for a foreign government that a normal person might say is bad. Um, it's not per se a crime to... <laughs> Spend $15,000 on an ostrich coat. So what is the trial here? Like, what is the charge that that is being made? Okay, so the trial this week is, you know, Manafort is facing two trials. This is his first one. It's in Virginia. And it's all about his money, basically, the money he made from his Ukrainian work and then what he allegedly did after the Yanukovych regime was deposed and he stopped getting that Ukrainian money. So... The first set of charges, they are several counts of filing false income tax returns and not declaring foreign bank accounts. So the prosecution is alleging here that Manafort set up this complicated web of offshore accounts in places like the Cayman Islands and St. Vincent and 
he had the money from his Ukrainian work deposited in there. But then he would spend that money directly in the United States without ever mentioning it on his income tax forms or declaring, as he's legally required, by filing what's known as an FBAR form, that uh, he had foreign bank accounts uh, that were valued above a certain amount. So that's why we're hearing so much about the fancy stuff Manafort is buying, because he was going to these vendors like a men's clothing store or a landscaper or you know, a real estate agent and he was buying stuff in the United States, but he was having it paid for directly by wires from these offshore accounts that he owned. And this was, it seems, he hasn't really disputed anything that's been presented at the trial about these transactions yet. It just seems to have been his standard practice, and he spent uh, about $30 million in this way in over 2009 to 2014 or so. But yeah, you're, you're, you're supposed to pay taxes on that stuff. You're supposed to declare when you have these foreign accounts. So those are the charges related to when he was making money. And so, and so to you know, explain how, you, how exactly you get to some of this bizarre clothing, right? The thing is, is that you're, you're supposed to declare this foreign income, but obviously you can choose not to. But to get away with it, right, you have to not have somebody – reporting back to the government that all this money came in, uh, if you open an American bank account and try to make these kind of large deposits in it, right, the bank is going to file what's called a suspicious activity report uh, with the Treasury Department. It's not illegal to deposit large sum of money out of nowhere into a bank account, but it does get flagged for the government so they can take a look, right? Right. Like The basic principle that it's really important to remember here is that even though when people are laying out in trials like this, like here's where the money came from and where it went, that is not information that the government has ready access to. Like money is fungible. And so you can't look at an ostrich jacket and go, that must have come from your illegal money. So like what the kind of suspicious transaction flag does is it makes it easier for investigators to go, we have probable cause that something wacky is going on. Right. So he doesn't bring it to U.S. banks because that would have required an SAR. Also, uh, jewelers basically have to file SARs, uh, the same as banks do, because the easiest way to launder money like this would be you buy a bunch of gold bars or something, and then you can just sell them. And then you have money, you put that in a bank, you file an SAR on that, and you say, well, I got it from selling the gold, you know, and like you're clean, right? So you can. So so dealers of precious metal and jewels have to file SARs. So who doesn't, right? So clothing retailers do not file SARs, but most clothing retailers, I've seen some, you know, journalists who, who focus on the retail sector have specifically called, you know, sort of the bigger international brand name chains. They will not accept incoming wire transfers of this kind, uh, both because you have to pay fees for it, right? It's, it's a little bit unusual. And also because most big companies like big enduring brands, I think, have tried to move away from business models whose main purpose would be to cover illicit activity, right? In um, general, if you're a major player in an industry, your compliance costs are going to be much lower relative to everything else than if you're a smaller player. So in general, and this is like one of the, you know, conservative critiques of regulation, it's easier for the major players to say, yes, cooperating with the government is fine and good because it's going to help us more than it's going to help our competitors. So you have these 
sort of odd boutiques, right? They're like small, not the world's most famous luxury goods company. They will take the wire transfers. They don't need to file SARs. And it is allowed to sell a $15,000 jacket to a guy who wants to wire you money from Ukraine. But or what the it, Cayman Islands. Or the Cayman Islands. Although in um, this case, it, like Manafort was like the only regular client who regularly did this at this particular boutique, right? Like this wasn't like the known Cayman boutique. The vendors are testifying at the trial generally that almost none of their other clients would pay for stuff with uh, wires from offshore accounts. Right. Right. <laughs> because there's no – I mean, you know, this is the kind of thing where like in theory, I think, like you could buy – a motorcycle with a duffel bag full of $20 bills. But, like, nobody does that, right? Like, there's no legitimate reason to be making purchases in this way. So it's not proof of a crime exactly, but it is entered into evidence to suggest that Paul Manafort had a lot of money, he was not reporting the income, and he was taking unusual steps, right, to sort of live high on the hog without disclosing uh, how much money he was really bringing in. The judge has essentially chided the prosecution a bit for dwelling a little too much on the details of exactly how lavish the stuff that Manafort bought was. And the judge is trying to, you know, keep it focused on the facts. And, you know, what the prosecution clearly is trying to do is make Manafort appear like an unsympathetic, extremely rich, unrelatable person who thinks he's above the law and does all this rampant spending and doesn't feel the need to pay taxes. And part of what they would like to happen is for the jury to kind of react with disgust and horror at the wild sums of money he's throwing around and the things he's buying with it. So the judge has kind of told them to stick a little bit more closely to the facts, which, you know, is defensible. Right. I mean, I think it's like, Matt, I know that, you know, occasionally on the weeds and certainly in IRL, like you've taken the position that there is serious under prosecution of white collar crime. And like, you know, on one hand, it would seem like the fact that Manafort is now on trial for a bunch of stuff that has nothing ostensibly to do with the Trump campaign, but that came to light as a result of this investigation would indicate that, like, maybe there should have been more assiduous work done at the time. But I think on the other hand, the kind of weird balance that the prosecution is trying to strike here is an indication of why this is so tricky. First of all, because, like, most cases don't go to trial. The fact that the prosecution here is clearly relying on, you know, jury sympathies to like do a little bit of the work for them or that that appears to be a big part of their strategy. You can't scale that up very easily because only 5% of cases are going to go to trial. And if you need to have a jury in front of you, you can't prosecute as many people as if you don't. But also because it's really hard to figure out exactly when a prosecutor is saying, look, no reasonable person needs to spend $15,000 on a drawstring ostrich leather jacket. We have the evidence here that this was more a way to bring income from overseas bank accounts to the U.S. without having to do anything about it than that it was a genuine investment. Like, you kind of do have to talk about what's the difference between a $15,000 ostrich leather drawstring jacket and a $15,000, like, super, super nice suit um, or something else that, like, might more reasonably cost $15,000. 
$15,000. But it does also get prejudicial, right? Like, there's a certain point at which you're going, this is the kind of thing that only a sketchy person does, that only a tacky rich person does, that, like, is an aesthetic that we associate with foreign criminality, uh, in particular Russian kleptocracy, well, but right? Look, there's, like, a prosecutorial decision-making framework, and then there's a policy-making framework, right? And so, like— when I say that we systematically under-prosecute white-collar crime, one of the things I mean is that if you put that proposition to a U.S. attorney, they'll say, like, no, Matt, like, these cases are, like, impossible to make, blah, 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 blah. We have no choice but to just turn a blind eye to large-scale white-collar crime, right? But that itself is a policy choice, right? Like, people in the, like, fancy lawyer banking establishment will give you a lot of, like— run around about, like, the Cayman Islands and offshore accounts. But, like, if the Cayman Islands government did anything at all that the powers that be in the United States of America wanted at all to put a stop to, it would be done in five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, if they tried to legalize the retail sale of heroin, like, the Navy would be on them in an instant, like, in violation of anything. And so, like, the fact that these offshore banking havens are allowed to exist at all, right, is just, like, a sign of— a kind of willful neglect of this kind of thing. And the screws get tightened, you know? Like, it is a lot harder in 2018 to engage in some of this money laundering uh, than it was 5 or 10 or or 20 years ago. But, like, uh, Marco Rubio did a a little thing last week where he was talking about how um, the Treasury Department, starting about three years ago, added Miami to its list of real estate markets where they were scrutinizing cash transactions for money laundering. So it went from a list of two cities to a list of three cities. And what it turned out when they started scrutinizing Miami was like there was a lot of money laundering. So Rubio's point, which seems valid to me, is like, If when we looked at New York, there was money laundering, and then when we looked at L.A., there was money laundering, and then when we looked at Miami, there was money laundering, maybe we should look at all the cities, right? And now it's not like you would need resources, right? Like it's not like the fault of the U.S. attorney in Idaho that he's not like looking into this. Like probably there isn't a lot of money laundering in Boise real estate. He's got other things to do. But like this is actually a big Trump issue, right? Where So it's like journalists who cover financial crimes will look at Trump's real estate portfolio and a lot of the all-cash transactions and are going to be like, hey, man, like this is really fishy. And like it is fishy. But all these years, like it hasn't been illegal to be running fishy real estate transactions. So at the end of the day, like it may all be fine. And but, I guess the but, other argument in favor here is that like there's a Twitter account that just – posts reports of individual occasions of stop and frisk in 2011. Uh, And a lot of those are like the thing that prompted the stop and frisk was, you know, engaging in actions uh, like of a crime or like wearing clothing associated with a crime. Like this kind of circumstantial, not to say aesthetic, people who do this often do crime stuff does work when you're dealing with populations that are not as politically enfranchised or rather like whether or not it's legal or advisable, it happens anyway. No, I mean, I do take, you know, one point on the other side that, uh, so it made to me is that, you know, sometimes people are trying to squirrel money out of foreign countries because they are living under abusive regimes abroad, right? And like, to what extent do we want, like, the United States to be like the world's financial jailkeeper, right? Like, that's not what was going on with Paul Manafort, 
Right. Right. Like he's certainly a lot of the Russians who have a lot of money abroad. It's because they're worried that their assets could be seized at any time. Right. So when you hear like, oh, Russians laundering money, like that could be like Vladimir Putin's best friend is trying to illegally smuggle money into the United States to suborn the NRA or something. (laughs) But it could just be like a Russian person who has done well in business but is not the best friend of the president of Russia is trying to hedge his bets. So that to me is the complicated part. Although, I mean, again, like that's not what Paul Manafort is doing. Yeah, and I think it's helpful to look at how this Manafort prosecution actually came about, you know, when it comes to the question of are these crimes too tough to prosecute? How many resources do they take? Because back in 2014, Manafort was on the FBI's radar. They were looking into his money and his Ukrainian work at the time, and uh, they decided not to move forward with anything then. So th- then he comes up in the Russia investigation. and but the, but the decision was that, like, it was too small time. Yeah, I mean, I think there was a, a BuzzFeed report that suggested that that, that was the calculation, but... My point here is that he comes up in the Russia investigation and then, you know, they start actually working it and they start looking into Manafort and they get, for instance, a source who is Manafort's employee. And the source tells him Manafort has this storage unit where he keeps a lot of his financial records. And then so the government gets a warrant and gets into the storage unit and and gets these financial records about all these offshore accounts and what he's spending all the money on and so on and and what he actually even owns. And then, you know, they use that information to help justify getting a warrant to search his house a couple months later. And, like, it took some serious investigative work here and some searches of I mean, this sort of of relates to our episode from a little while ago about homicides, right? right? And so it's like police departments investigate, like, a large share of the murders that happen, but like, you know, in certain neighborhoods, certain victims, they don't really, they maybe do a cursory look around, but they don't like work the case that hard. Or they work the case exactly hard enough to realize how hard the case is going to be to work and then... Right. And with these financial crimes, there has not been an emphasis on trying to work the cases hard, you know? Whereas then with Manafort, because Paul Manafort popped up on the radar of the Russia investigation and the Russia investigation was considered a big deal, right? That was like someone gets murdered in the fancy part of town, right? It was like, we, we are, di- no, but you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Both, both in the Comey era and especially in the Robert Mueller era, right? Like the Russia investigation is being pursued very seriously. Yes. Whereas like, did rich guy Joe dodge his taxes some is just like not a high priority case for the American government. But if Joe was also involved with both Donald Trump and the Russian government, now suddenly there's like a lot of like, okay, we are going to seriously investigate this. And what it turns out is that like when you put in the work, there was a lot more evidence on Paul Manafort than was obvious if you hadn't. Yeah. So we should probably take a break and then get back to the the fact that the reason that we are talking about all this to begin with, which is things related to Donald Trump. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. 
With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So on its face, Donald Trump's campaign manager or his second out of three campaign managers was a tax cheat and a money launderer. Not a great look. Kind of embarrassing. But also... Who cares? I right. Mean, also, he, like we've literally just spent, you know, however many minutes discussing that this is not super unusual behavior necessarily. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not good. It's 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 not a great look. But you know, I don't know. There's a lot of random stories. But like, wh- why is this so important? So, Robert Mueller appears to be extremely, extremely interested in Paul Manafort from the very beginning when Mueller was appointed. In the weeks after that, there were these raids on Manafort's properties. This focus on Manafort has been in contrast to other things that Mueller has found out and opted not to investigate himself. We've learned that he referred an investigation of Michael Cohen out to the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office rather than continuing to investigate Cohen for this hush money stuff and so on. But he's kept the Manafort investigation. There are a couple possible reasons for that. It is more closely related to Russia because this is about Manafort's finances and how he made millions of dollars from his work for the pro-Russian political faction in Ukraine and allegedly didn't pay taxes on it and so on. But, you know, I I think the most plausible explanation for what's going on here is that Mueller thinks Manafort knows something and that he has brought all of these charges against Manafort, 18 in Virginia and seven other charges in in D.C., which we haven't even talked about. That's for a separate trial in September as pressure to get him to plead guilty, to cooperate, to say what he knows, and so on. We've already seen that Manafort's protege, right-hand man who worked with him in Ukraine and also on the Trump campaign, Rick Gates. Mm -hmm. Gates was charged alongside Manafort by Mueller uh, last October. He was facing a very similar uh, broad set of charges. 
And as soon as he agreed to cooperate in February, almost all of those charges went away. And he he got a plea deal, pleaded guilty for two false statements charges and um, has in exchange for agreeing to tell what he knew. So so Gates is now an important point right. in the Manafort yes. trial Let's- itself, right? Because so it's a little difficult for Manafort to deny that the crimes occurred in this case. So he sort of needs to say that he didn't do them. Yeah. Right. So for months we've been waiting to hear what Manafort's defense could possibly be because this because is, like he clearly had all this money yes, right. and he didn't pay taxes on it. So and, the, on and this has face, been referred to as as a, a paper case because it's really just about filling out forms you were supposed to fill out and whether the money was in fact spent by you at these places. You know, it, it seems to be pretty cut and dry. So what we're seeing at trial this week is that. The prosecution's goal is to just demonstrate beyond the shadow of a doubt by interviewing all these vendors that Manafort made the payments to that, yes, he was the one making these payments. He knew about this money. He was spending it. There's no kind of excuse there. Interviewing his bookkeepers and accountants, yes, Manafort was hiding these foreign accounts from us. Um, He should have told us and so on. Manafort's defense, it is now clear, is that he is going to try to blame as much as possible on Rick Gates and say that my buddy, Rick Gates, who who was deeply involved in Manafort's finances at the time, you know, that Gates was the one who did all the crimes. And it's kind of a stretch because Gates was obviously not the person who was buying the ostrich jacket and the ostrich vest and all the other stuff. But it's what he's got, basically. He's going to try to hurt Gates's credibility, make character attacks on him and blame him essentially for as much of the charges as possible. Well, I mean, hold on. There is theoretically an argument that if someone like someone who has the charges against them that Manafort currently has can put together the defense that, yes, these things weren't reported, these forms weren't filled out, but I didn't know that they weren't filled out because I'm a rich dude. I don't do my own taxes and my own financial disclosures. My you know business partner, Rick Gates, was supposed to be the one who was in charge of that. He's the one who fell down on the job, right? Like, it's not inherently wrong that someone could make an argument like that. It's much more that the suspicion is that, like, they don't actually have the goods to demonstrate that Rick Gates was the one who was responsible, but this, right? But this speaks to the difficulty of doing yeah. white-collar prosecutions, right? So, like, once upon a time, it was really difficult to prosecute the mafia, right? Because, like, the mafia boss doesn't shoot people in the head, right? He runs an organization, and if his subordinates happen to do things, and so they, like, pass new laws to, like, make it more illegal to be at the head of a criminal enterprise, right? Right. You saw in the prosecutions coming out of the Enron case an effort by federal prosecutors to stretch certain existing statutes to sort of cover the like, come on, man, legal argument that like if you're the CEO of the company and the company's business was based on a years-long fraud, that like obviously you are legally culpable. Um, They won with the jury with that argument. Uh, But but the Supreme Court like pretty overwhelmingly – tossed that out and was like, no, like you do need to prove like specifically that the guy at the top actually did the crimes. And so like 
Yeah, like it's a valid defense to say, I made $60 million, I paid no taxes on it, I bought all these ostriches, but like I had just kind of like, was like, Rick, take care of the paperwork, and and Rick didn't do it. And so, and so that's on him. I, I mean, it, it, this is one reason why, I, this is I think the prosecution's reason why you like are delving into some of the details about the ostriches and stuff like that, because it speaks to Manafort's personal knowledge that there was something shady about the money, right? That like, yeah. if you thought it was legitimate money, what were you doing exactly making wire transfers to Ellen Couture, right? It, it seems like he knew this was hot cash. But, you know, that's... That. And they're also interviewing his bookkeepers and his accountants and asking things like, was Manafort personally involved in this? And like, they're generally saying, yes, he was extremely hands-on, like very responsive to my questions, like very involved in this, like not the type of guy who would just delegate, hand off everything to a subordinate and be completely ignorant of of what was happening. But, but this is kind of where like the question of like, is Rick Gates testifying or not, which is like come into question a couple of times this week. Although it, looks it's, like, it seems like he yeah, is. Yeah, it seems like he is as of now, but like there was a moment where it surprisingly looked like he wasn't. And generally the fact that the prosecution has been working much more quickly than expected, partly this appears to be because, you know, there's this aggressive judge on the bench who is saying, you know, I think it's time for you guys to wrap up. But also like, I do have questions, you know, does this look like the prosecution maybe doesn't have as open and shut a case as we thought they were going to? Like, should we read a whole lot into the kind of momentary confusion about whether Gates was going to testify? Like, do we think that they actually no. have the goods here? No. The, what, what happened with the Gates maybe not testifying thing is that the prosecutor got a little too cute in court, um, basically saying that. You know, they have a witness list of 35 people who they could call. And um, some comment was made about Gates, like that he was going to testify. And then the prosecutor was like, kind of like, actually, these are, this is just a list of people we could call. It's not like uh, okay. clear that we will call them. And then the next day, he kind of like, admitted that no yes we are we are going to call him so it's it's not it's not indicative of anything deeper here but, but i mean i think one thing that that the judge ellis has sort of made clear in, in a number of his rulings and statements right is that like i'm here on the podcast saying that like white collar crime is systematically under prosecuted in the united states that like law enforcement doesn't have the right resources the right statutory tools etc to like go after all these criminals and it's our good fortune that Paul Manafort happens to have fallen on Mueller's radar. I think it's pretty clear that Judge Ellis views this through like the other end of the lens and is like he has banned the word oligarch from being used. Right. And and he sees Paul Manafort fundamentally as a guy who was doing stuff that normal people could easily get away with, who is being strung up by prosecutors because they're trying to do this Russia investigation. And it's like me and the judge completely agree on like what's going on here. But the question is, is like, so is it good that because of the Russia investigation, we are finally prosecuting a tax fraud case in a serious way? Or is it like, okay, guys, like you are allowed to do this, but I am very sympathetic to the defendant here. Also, I think what Trump is getting at with these weird Al Capone tweets, right, that like basically 
a person should be able to get away with a little light tax evasion, right? That like if to prove the case requires all these resources and you wouldn't normally dedicate all these resources to that kind of case, that's suspicious. That it's kind of like Manafort is getting railroaded just for his association with with Donald Trump. And that keeps sort of coming up in the trial. But, oh, but unlike say, blaming Rick Gates, like that's not a valid legal defense. Right. Like, yeah, if you don't broke hate the law, the player, you broke the, the game. Is like an argument for changing the law. It's not an argument for not prosecuting. And I do want to point out that Judge Ellis, there was this hearing that got a ton of attention a couple months ago in in pretrial hearing where he expressed his opinion that this was only happening because they wanted to impeach Trump. However, this was in arguments over whether Mueller's appointment was proper and he had the proper authority to prosecute Manafort. And when Judge Ellis actually had to rule on that, he said, yes, he did have the authority. Right. Like he has made his personal opinion clear, but he has not like really tipped the scales in, in a – in an improper way. Wait, so that's what I mean. He's being I mean, tough on the prosecution, but like a lot of people expect that he's going to be pretty tough on the defense too when it's it's their turn. So. Right. I mean, this, this I bring this up to say like it keeps coloring little yes. things that happen around the case, but it just it doesn't appear to be fundamentally driving it. Although I will say, right, it's noteworthy that Mueller post Manafort seems to be more inclined to hand things off. To right. regular U.S. attorneys, right? Like the Michael Cohen situation, right? Where on its face it seems similar, right? That like in theory Robert Mueller would love it if Michael Cohen walked through his door and was like, here's a ton of incriminating evidence about Donald Trump. I would like a plea deal. But instead they have evidence on Cohen for some other stuff. Uh, but the way that is all being structured is that like – the regular U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York is running a regular prosecution that officially has absolutely nothing to do with Russia. And like whether some flipping event occurs or not is like – they put a lot of distance, right? Whereas in the Manafort case, it's it's much closer in part because the Manafort case legitimately involves Russia, right? right? And not like Trump and Russia per se, but like the, the Russian government – and its proxies are like key figures in this case. So it, if at the end of the day, right, like the upshot of the whole investigation was like Donald Trump personally didn't do anything wrong and there was no collusion, but like his campaign manager did, that would now feel like anticlimactic, but like it's kind of a big story. But let's Which go back of- to Manafort and, and Russia himself and yes. why he does seem to be such an important figure in the Russia investigation. So, like, first of all, it's just obvious that if you're investigating Donald Trump for and his campaign for whether they coordinated with Russian government officials to interfere with the election, the guy who was his campaign manager who worked for a Russian oligarch who was, in fact, heavily in debt to a Russian oligarch and who had worked for pro-Russian interests in Ukraine for many years and made a ton of money from it, that's a guy you look at. So just on the surface, it's kind of obvious why they're looking at Manafort. Beyond that, he's been involved in, I would say, two mysterious incidents that happened in the 2016 campaign. Uh, The first is, of course, the 
infamous Trump Tower meeting with Donald Trump Jr., the Russian lawyer, and um, this other set of uh, people with ties to Russia. Don Jr. brought in Manafort and Kushner to that meeting. It was set up specifically to get dirt on Hillary Clinton as, according to an email, uh, as part of Russia and its government's support for Mr. Trump. And since we learned of this meeting a year after it happened, everyone involved has stuck to a story of what happened there, that it was really a big nothing, that, you know, nobody knew too much about it in advance. They kind of took it on a lark. They sat down and then it turned out to be useless and then nothing came out of it afterward. And that was the end of the story. By useless, to be clear, it's it turned out to be just a lobbying meeting about actual policy. Not, you know, right? Like it not useless well, in dirt, terms of- They didn't have any dirt right, on exactly, that was exactly. useful, was, is, is the claim. And nobody involved in this meeting has flipped and become a cooperator with Mueller, no, no one who is actually there. So if there is more to the story of that meeting, Manafort probably knows what it is. Um, we've already seen that um, Don Jr. said that he barely even discussed this with anyone else in advance, but there's this new allegation going around that actually Rudy Giuliani was the person who revealed it on TV that- Giuliani claims that Cohen has been telling people that there was a meeting beforehand to set up the strategy for this meeting. And, you know, basically, if there is more to the story, Manafort would know it. And, like, maybe that is what Mueller's looking for from him. Or maybe he's already got it from Rick Gates, his close associate who uh, worked with him on the Trump campaign and probably would have talked to Manafort about stuff like this. So this is my question about this is – We know that Paul Manafort has information that would probably be helpful one way or the other for Mueller to get and that he's not giving it to Mueller and that he is being prosecuted in part because, unlike Gates, he is not flipping. I I would say we don't know that. We we could think it, but maybe Manafort really does have nothing. It's at least possible. Okay, but given that the potential significance of Manafort is these things, what from this trial are we either as the public going to learn from like what is being publicly discussed or what is the theoretical upshot of this trial's conclusion in like getting that information? Like what is this trial actually going to do to move the ball forward? Nothing in terms of new information about what Russia and Trump did in 2016. The the only real a- outcome of the trial is that if Manafort is convicted, he loses his his long shot chance that uh, he'll be able to snooker the jury or whatever and and get out of it. So that is potentially more leverage on him, or he could just keep holding out for a pardon, too. So, I mean, right. So, I, I mean, I, th- I do think we should speculate irresponsibly about, <laughs> about the end game. I was, I was talking uh, recently with one of my sources in the, in the normie community, and he said that Manafort wasn't flipping because he was afraid the Russians were going to kill him. And I was like, no, that's not why. It's because he's holding out for a Donald Trump pardon, which does seem like, like one does not need to read that far between the lines of like, First, like Donald Trump's like weird cowboy pardons in general, and then secondarily, his like occasionally chiming in on Twitter to not not do like the the normal 
president whose aide is embroiled in scandal thing of like sealing off the decks and being like, I don't even know that guy. Like, it's good that we're prosecuting. Instead, he keeps talking about how he feels that Paul Manafort is being treated unfairly. Well, he did that a little with Manafort saying, oh, he was barely even on my campaign. Right. Well, right. I, I, I think yeah. that back in the mustache guy era, uh, who is he? Ty Cobb? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So when Ty Cobb was running the show, Trump's approach to this investigation was a little bit more conventional, in my opinion. And some of that included doing a little bit more Manafort distancing. I think now we're back, like, Trump in the saddle. And this is like, in a normal situation, you... It's like a kind of witness tampering, but I want to be careful because I don't want everybody yelling at me. Like, there are no limits on the president's pardon power, up to and including, right? Like, Sarah Huckabee Sanders could walk into Congress, shoot and kill every single Democratic Party senator, have them all be replaced with Republicans, and Trump could pardon her. So, like, you are right, Republicans. Trump can do whatever he wants. But, like, he seems to be saying, like, pretty clearly that, like, if Paul holds firm here and we can maybe like get past the midterms, that there's going to be a pardon. Well, and also we know that Trump's former lawyer, John Dowd, talked to Manafort's lawyer about a potential pardon at some point last year. The The Times has reported that. So, you know, this is not just a theoretical question. It's It's been talked about. Um, I, I would say that can Trump actually do it? That is a little less clear to me because – Mueller has made clear that he is investigating Trump's pardon power dangling as like part of his obstruction of justice investigation. So, you know, who knows what the upshot of that might be. But, you know, on those lists of questions that Mueller's team says they want to ask Trump uh, includes several about what he said and um, done about potential pardons and communications uh, that he may have had about pardons and so it, it's it's not like he's totally free to do whatever. I, I do want to just mention t- to uh, close the loop on something I mentioned before that there were two mysterious incidents in the campaign, though, uh, that Manafort was involved in. So the second one is that Manafort, during the campaign, he got the job to be Trump's campaign chair. At the time, he was in debt to this Russian oligarch, Oleg Deripaska, and Manafort emailed Konstantin Kalimnik, a Russian national with past ties to Russian intelligence or or maybe even current ties, that um, Manafort basically signaled that he wanted to somehow use his work for the Trump campaign to get on Deripaska's radar and help satisfy this debt. So there are a series of emails that Manafort and Kalimnik exchange in the summer of 2016 while he's working for Trump. They use this like vague coded language about Deripaska. Kalimnik calls him the guy who gave you the biggest black caviar jar years ago. And uh, Manafort is is saying, how do we use this to get whole? Manafort writes, uh, if he wants private briefings, we can accommodate. Kalimnik says, I talked with him for five hours and I have important messages from him to you. And this is while Manafort is chairing Trump's campaign. It's never been explained what this was about or what exactly happened. And, and I view it as one of the biggest loose ends of the of the Trump-Russia scandal, just what exactly was going on here. I, I guess there are two possibilities. 
One is that this was entirely kind of freelancing by Manafort, had nothing to do with Trump himself. He was just trying to, you know, shadily land some kind of financial side gig. The other possibility is that, like, this is kind of how that this is important to the collusion investigation, that these conversations with Deripaska, who is an oligarch close to Putin, who was vacationing with a top Russian foreign policy official uh, around that time, like, it seems like it could be important to the investigation, but we still haven't learned the full story of what happened there. So I feel like I want to go back to something that Matt said in passing that I've been chewing over since, which is the difference between the like mustache guy era, the Ty Cobb era of the like Trump response to this stuff and the Rudy Giuliani era. Because to the extent that what we're talking about with Manafort is stuff that is particular to the question of what did Donald Trump know? When did he know it? What did he do? The opinion of Rudy Giuliani pretty clearly and the opinion that Donald Trump appears to have held, if maybe with less knowledge of federal criminal law than Rudy Giuliani has, is that a sitting president has traditionally been understood to be unindictable. Impeachment happens not because the president is like found to have probable cause to have committed a crime, but because Congress decides to impeach the president and therefore it kind of doesn't matter what the president does. Like Ty Cobb is doing more of a, you know, during that era, it was kind of assumed or it was reported that Trump was not in touch with Mike Flynn because Mike Flynn was under investigation. And then it came out that Trump, in fact, had been in touch with Mike Flynn, that like he'd been telling him to buck up, that kind of thing. But that was happening through a back channel. Now things are happening much more in the open because either that firewall exists or it doesn't, right? And if the firewall exists and like, what happens to Paul Manafort, like, both because in theory there's the pardon power and because it's not going to touch Trump anyway, like, doesn't actually matter. What happens to, you know, any other person professionally involved in the Trump campaign matters. The only possible kind of distinction here in terms of people who are not Donald Trump, who Donald Trump would be upset if something happened to them because it could, you know, for reasons that aren't he would be criminally implicated, would be like Donald Trump Jr., Like, that strikes me as maybe a difference here. But other than that, if Rudy Giuliani is correct, right, if his theory of the case that it doesn't actually matter what Donald Trump did unless and until Congress decides to impeach him and Congress doesn't necessarily need any more information than they have now to do that, I kind of wonder why any of this actually matters in, you know, maybe it gives us information that we didn't otherwise have, but we're not getting any closer to, like, any kind of accountability, quote unquote, if Donald Trump did something illegal. Well, I I mean, I think that there's the LOL nothing matters take that, oh, well, it's just up to Congress and they can impeach him or not impeachment. But, you know, you can have a strong impeachment case with a lot of evidence that is convincing to people or or a weak impeachment case. And right now, like the impeachment case isn't even strong enough for most Democrats. I mean, partly that's for political reasons. They don't want to get involved in it. But if Mueller has the goods on Trump doing potentially illegal collusion and he lets that be known or Rod Rosenstein lets that be known in a report to Congress or something like that. But I think I think I a think... lot will depend on like what exactly happened. Like was this, you know, because there's collusion in the sense that like, oh, they took a meeting with some Russians to get dirt on Hillary Clinton. So that's technically collusion because 
they had the meeting, but also nothing really happened out of it. Like there's <laughs> there's like kind of light collusion and there's heavy collusion. Something involving the hacked emails, something involving like this massive social media bot operation involving information sharing, cooperation, working together, something involving money, something involving like actual policy promises being exchanged behind the scenes. Um, like that's the stuff that we really haven't seen. Mueller hasn't indicted anyone about anything like this. He hasn't said he has evidence like this, but that would be the meat of an impeachment case, I think, in addition to like the potential obstruction of justice stuff. But I mean, this is where I do think, you know, the the question of a, a post midterms, you know, Mueller pardon, Saturday Night Massacre type situation, where like, I just think... <laughs> It both feels like Trump has been laying the groundwork for something like that for a long time. Also, like, members of Congress have been not very clear on how they would respond to something like that. Uh, But also, there is clearly some voice of caution inside Trump's head or inside the White House that is telling him, like, lay the groundwork, but don't actually do it. Right. And like Manafort being convicted would definitely put us one step closer to like you have to make a choice about that. Right. Although a very Trumpy way to handle it would be don't fire Rosenstein, don't fire Mueller, do pardon Manafort. Yeah. And then kind of put that out there. Right. And like are Republicans really going to impeach Donald Trump over having pardoned Paul Manafort? for a prosecution that, like, even the liberal Matt Iglesias agrees was really only brought as part of this bigger Russia investigation. You know, and it it, it seems like firing Mueller, like, that that's a tough one, you know? Like, that creates big, big, big problems for you. But, like, we pardoned Scooter Libby. We pardoned Joe Arpaio. You know, some people criticized some of that stuff, but it just kind of blows over, right? And you can create a situation where you can't make the case and you just keep kind of dragging it out. But do not drag out your exciting opportunity to share the weeds with friends, family, loved ones, etc. to join the Weeds Facebook group, uh, to uh, share any tips on where you can get good ostrich skin apparel. Um, you know, Maybe are, even for less than $15,000. Or who is still accepting wire transfers? Uh, I've got some, got some funds in Cyprus that, uh, you know, they, they re- I do not, please, attorneys. Uh, no. <laughs> There's no funds in Cyprus. Um, so, so thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, thanks to our engineer, uh, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thanks, Andrew, for joining us and enlightening us. And the weeds will return on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, More than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com.